Lord leads. And so tonight, we're going to start kind of a, uh, right now, it's probably going to be about a 10-week kind of mini-study, maybe less, maybe more like eight weeks, depending on how the material goes uh, through, as I'm just kind of putting it together, writing it as we go. Uh, but before we get into that, um, I do want to share, and some of you, the last couple of years, I've handed these out or given these out. Um, I'm not going to hand them out per se, uh, but if you're interested, you can definitely get one. Um, because if you have already have one and you have it handy and you've still got one readily available, you, this is the same exact thing as yet last year. Uh, but we handed out in, um, and actually I didn't change, it still says 2022, um, in January of last year, uh, we handed out the, uh, an idea of how you can be praying for our local church. So it's a list of 18 prayers for the local church. Now, it's written in a form of just for any and every church. But obviously, we were encouraging our, our church to pray for our church and our local churches here in Lapeer County in our community. So um, there's 18 different prayers that you can be praying for the church for this year. So if you would like one, again, we handed one out this last year, and we might have even done it the year before that. I can't remember. Um, and so we took time just to kind of go through each one together the last couple of years. And so we're not going to do that tonight. Um, because again, some of you still have this exact handout. Some of you have been praying these prayers. Um, it was actually a great encouragement. Somebody said, hey, I, I misplaced mine. Can I get another one? Um, I'd like to be doing that again this year. So that was an encouragement, which made me think about doing this tonight and making these available. So give you an example of a couple things on here. Um, one of the things uh, of the prayers that a hunger for studying the Gospels would form among members so that they can guide and guard one another in it. Um, so prayers like that. Um, Another one here, that the preaching of God's word, that it would be biblically, biblically careful and Holy Spirit empowered. So those kind of things that we're asking for prayer on for our church, but not just our church, but the churches in our community. Uh, I've said it before many times, if revival, not if, when revival and as revival hits our community, it's not going to be confined to one church. Uh, when you study revival throughout church history, even in not only Bible history, but church history, modern church history, it is something that just is... is all throughout the church. It's actually in the body of Christ. And so um, our local churches, our local pastors that are preaching the gospel, well, when revival comes, it won't just be here. So we're not praying, Lord, bring revival to North Goodland. Lord, we're praying, bring revival to Lapeer County, bring revival to Michigan, bring revival to the United States. And so when we're praying these things, we're not just praying them for our church. I mean, specifically, it's for our church, but it's also for every church in our community that is preaching the gospel. Now, there are churches that aren't preaching the gospel, which we're going to dive into some of that tonight a little bit. Uh, we're not going to name churches or nothing, but I'm just saying there are churches in our country that are not preaching the gospel. But those that truly preach the word, we want to be praying for them. So I've got about 25, 24, 25 handouts up here. If you want one, please grab one when you leave. Actually, I'll put it on the table back here. That's easier to see. So we'll do that. So when you leave tonight, if you don't have one or misplaced yours or didn't get one last year, please grab one so you're able to be praying for our church. All right. So tonight, what we're going to be doing is, and I don't have a handout for you. So if you don't have a way to take notes, I apologize. Um, I realized this afternoon when Sandra asked me, will we get a handout? And I said no. And then I went, oh, everyone's really used to getting a handout. So most of you, maybe you don't have a notebook or if you do, pull that out. But uh, tonight's also going to be a little different in that it's kind of like an introduction to what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. So we will get into the word in just a little bit. But before we get to the scriptures, I want to kind of set up or establish what we're going to be doing the next few weeks. All right. So tonight, what we're going to be doing, as I mentioned this morning, is investigating the topic of progressive Christianity. 
and kind of discover their Ten Commandments. Now, when I say they or their or a whole group in a broad sense like progressive Christians, we understand that there's going to be people that maybe fall under this category that would not agree with every one of these. Okay, we're speaking in very broad terms, very general terms, um, and we need to do that with something like this because this has kind of become a movement in the church in America today. Uh, this is something that you've, many of you have heard talked about. Uh, another way you could identify this would be liberal Christianity. Now, liberal, not in the political sense, necessarily, okay? So some of us, it's like conservative and liberal. We instantly go to political thinking. Don't do that. That's not exactly what we're saying. What we are saying, it's liberal in a sense of the theology behind it, all right? So let me kind of tell you how we got to this idea of doing this together. So recently, um, I came across this little simple book, I mean, really small book, and I mentioned it to Sandra, like, hey, this looks like a good read. Maybe this would be a great Christmas present. So you know how we do that, right? You're just like, hey, maybe, and then you send a link to it, or you send a picture of it, right? So I did that. Surprisingly, guess what I got for Christmas? The little book. Yeah, it worked out really great that way. So, but this little book, it's literally called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, and after I read through it, and it's a real small book, maybe 60, 65 pages, um, they talk about all these different things. And as I was getting through the book, I said, man, this is so simple, but really overlooked in a lot of Christians' lives, I would think. And Sandra and I were talking about it one day, and, and she just said, well, what if we just did something like that for the church? And I said, that's a great idea. So I started working on this the last couple of weeks. And uh, what I want to do is kind of go through over the next so many weeks, we're going to go through each one of these commandments and talk about what progressive Christianity believes, what it looks like, and how it does not match up with Scripture. But also we're going to talk about how many half-truths we find in progressive Christianity and how so many things sound really good, sound really close, but yet when you really dive past the title, dive past the surface, you're going to actually find out it's actually not only not biblical, it's anti-biblical, meaning it's against God's word. So we'll dive through all of that. And again, the reason for this, why do I want to do this? Okay, the, here's the main reason, the whole reason we're doing this series, is so that we as believers will be guarded against this teaching. We must be aware so that we can guard our hearts and minds against this teaching. Progressive Christianity is merely the title given to those within Christianity that mix biblical truth with liberal interpretation. So how do you define progressive Christianity? Well, it's, it's the group or individuals or a teaching that mix... The idea of biblical truth with liberal interpretation. So they'll quote the Bible, they'll talk about the Bible, they'll reference the Bible. Uh, you're going to actually hear in just a little bit from kind of a guy that I would say, he's not the only one out there, but he's kind of more of an extreme example of this in some ways, but also in other ways, really what this group is teaching. So you'll hear two different videos in just a little bit of his own teaching. What's funny is both of the titles of the videos talk about Christ. And yet everything he says has nothing to do with a biblical Christ. But yet the title is given in there. So it sounds, again, Christian. So it's not that they're ignoring the Bible. They, they take the Bible, they'll quote verses, they'll quote scripture, right? But similarly to what happened when Jesus was tempted, Matthew chapter 4, Satan quoted scripture. What was the problem with those quotations, though? Either misquoted or misapplied, right? It came down to interpretation, and so what do we see here? These liberal interpretations of biblical truth, okay? A mixing of those two things. This is not a new thing. Not only is it as old as Matthew 4 and older, but also it's even been written about within the last hundred years, okay? So I want to I read a quote 
And this is from an individual that in 1923, an author by the name, and a professor by the name J. Gresham Mason, uh, he was a professor at Princeton Seminary. Now that's a little ironic uh, because in 1923, Princeton Cemetery actually held to some pretty biblical fair grounds. Obviously, as time went on, they moved away from those foundations. But this man was a professor at Princeton Seminary, and he wrote a book responding to the liberalism infiltrating the church. 1923. This is not like 10 years ago, 20 years ago. This is 100 years ago. He's writing about this idea. The work of the title, or the work was titled, Christianity and Liberalism. So he sounds like a great author, but not great at titles, because I'm going to write a book about Christianity and liberalism. What are you going to call it? Christianity and liberalism. So here's what he says in this book. The author argued that the liberal understanding of Christianity was in fact not just a variant version of the faith, uh, not did it represent simply a different denominational perspective, but was an entirely different religion. Put simply, liberal Christianity is not Christianity. I want to read that again. Mason argued that the liberal understanding of Christianity was in fact not just a variant version of the faith, not did it represent simply a different denominational perspective. What do I mean by a different denominational perspective? Baptist to assemblies or Methodist to Baptist. And what do I mean by that? There's different things in our faith, primarily practices of our faith, religious things as far as how we do church, right? If you go to a Lutheran church, they're more what's called liturgical. So there's maybe more of a formality to it than another kind of denomination, okay? There's differences of denominational perspective or preference. Those are fine as long as the biblical truth is being preached, right? A church can do church this way or this way. Both can be fine as long as Christ is central, the gospel is central, and those kind of things. What this author is saying is this movement is not that. It's not just a different variation of Christianity. He actually says in his own opinion, put simply, liberal Christianity, again, don't think political, think liberal with interpretation. Liberal Christianity is not Christianity. And I want to read a long kind of understanding of this. And again, I'm going to do a lot of this tonight, just kind of give you some information to set up what we're going to be talking about, because I believe it's important to understand the foundations of these teachings. In liberal theology, or another term for it is modernism, so modern, I-S-M, so liberal theology or modernism could be defined as this. Man's reason is stressed and treated as the final authority. Let that sink in for a moment. In liberal theology, man's reason is stressed and treated as the final authority. We've already uh, gone off the rails from biblical theology. Liberal theologians seek to reconcile Christianity with secular science and modern thinking. In doing so, they treat science as all-knowing and the Bible as fable-laden and false. Genesis's early chapters are reduced to poetry or fantasy, having a message, but not to be taken literally, in spite of Jesus having spoken of those early chapters in literal terms. Mankind is not seen as totally depraved. And again, we would take that phrase and we would want to understand it in the appropriate way. There are those in Christianity that say that mankind, because of sin, is totally depraved, unable to be saved apart from the Spirit of God working in their hearts and minds. I would agree with that, except I would say some would teach that that means 
that you don't actually choose salvation when the gospel is presented to you. You either have to get saved or you're not getting saved. I would say we are depraved in the sense that we naturally are inclining towards sin, but that when the Spirit of God works and the gospel is preached, I have a choice to make in that moment. I'm depraved, but I'm not enabled. I can choose. I'm able to choose because God has given me a measure of faith. So this author continues. So mankind is not seen as totally depraved. Actually, many liberal theologians say that we're, we're born good. There's no sin issue, things like that. And thus, liberal theologians have an optimistic view of the future of mankind. You're going to hear a little bit of this in, I think, in one of the videos tonight. I watched a lot of this individual's videos this last week, so I might be getting it confused with a different video. It goes on to say, the social gospel is also emphasized. What is the social gospel? Has anyone heard that phrase, the social gospel? Has anyone heard that phrase before? What would you think that would be speaking to the social gospel. Okay, I, I didn't think about that application, but yeah, I could see someone thinking that. That if your society is, you know, inherently Christian, so America, for example, we're founded on Christian principles, therefore I'm Christian because I'm an American. I could see that. Any other thoughts on that title, the social gospel? What could be being spoken of there? Think about modern thinking today. Think about maybe some things in our own country that you hear. Maybe talk about Christians emphasizing one thing over another. Renee, sorry, that's fine. Go ahead, Julie. I was just going to say what comes to mind when you say social, social justice. Okay. Okay, so Renee, go ahead, and then I'll kind of follow up with that. Okay. Yeah. So you guys are, you guys are right there. What I would say this means is basically it's more important that you're good to your neighbor. You, you're a good person. You do good things for people. That's really what should be emphasized. Not so much sin and hell and the blood of Christ. It's more about, Hey, live the gospel out. What's that? Yes. Yep. We're going to talk a lot about you're going to find out progressive Christianity deals heavy in morality, okay, heavy in that. But that's the idea of the social gospel, social justice, right? Everyone is taken care of. Everyone is treated equal. Now, are those necessarily bad things to treat people equally and be nice and be kind? Not intrinsically wrong, but how we define those things, now we start getting into an issue, okay? We can respect everyone. And as followers of Christ, we should see everyone as image bearers of God, Right? Every human being has intrinsic value and worth. And actually, only in Christianity do we actually believe that because the Bible teaches that. A lot of people think that and say that, but when you pose, why do you think that? They don't know why. Because their worldview or their religious background teaches them not that everyone has intrinsic value and worth. That's why we can murder a baby in the womb, and that's okay. But those same people would say, if that child was six months old, that's wrong. But why? Why do you think that way? If it's right over here, then according to your worldview, it should be right over here. We as Christians and Christianity, according to the Bible, we have a understanding that all humanity is created in the image of God. Now, I can 100% respect someone and appreciate someone 
and have a friendship with someone and yet still have a difference of opinion on things and say, well, this is right and this is wrong and still respect that person. Progressive Christianity says, no, 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 no. Nope, you have to accept them, right? You have to tolerate them. These are the terms that you're going to hear because that's the betterment of the, so- the society. That's the social gospel represents, being good to everyone, right? Helping everyone. So those, that term, again, it's not that it's a completely wrong thing. It's a half-truth, right? Should we love our neighbor as ourselves? Yeah. But we have to also remember that it's loving God first with all of us that leads to us loving our neighbors as ourselves. goes on to say this. So the social gospel is also emphasized, while the inability of fallen man to fulfill it is denied. Whether a person is saved from sin and its penalty in hell is no longer the issue. The main thing is how man treats his fellow man. Love, in quotations, of our fellow man becomes the defining issue. Now, I said it this morning. Is Jesus loving? Thousand percent. More so than we'll ever be. He loved us as his creation. But you understand what they're saying here. It's not an and, it's an either or. Well, you, you people that preach sin and the cross, then you just don't understand that Jesus is really love. Because in their definition of love, we accept everyone. There's no talk of sin. There's no right and wrong. We're all on equal footing. It's an either or. This is becoming more and more common in the church. Believers are falling for half-truths by supposed intellectual Christians who state definitive facts about the Bible and yet will tell you uh, we are all on a journey and can't really know anything 100%. That, That one blows me away. People will tell you, you can't believe that. Jesus would never do that. And then they'll tell you in the very next breath, but we're all on a journey. We're all journeying. We're all learning and growing. But then you can't make definitive statements if you're telling me you're still learning and growing and don't know. Again, it's, in progressive Christianity, it's more important to ask questions than to find answers. Because in progressive Christianity, it's, it's more spiritual to just ask a bunch of questions. But then never be arrogant enough to say this is the answer. So again, it's a kind of a false intellectualism. One of the biggest proponents of this type of Christianity that I've heard of in the last 10, 15 years is actually a former Catholic father. His name is Richard Rohr, and that's spelled R-O-H-R, who wrote a devotional series and has done much teaching uh, as well and is part of a, a ministry or a location called the Center for Action and Contemplation. The Center for Action and Contemplation. Can you just hear the intellectualism, we're just going to contemplate. But yet when you watch his teachings, he'll tell you this or that is definitive. So he wrote a devotional series, and the title of that series was called, quote, Returning to Essentials. Returning to Essentials. Now, when you hear that, what, do you, what, are you, what does the author want you to think he's going to talk about? Returning to Essentials. What's trying to get you to think about his work? Okay, something you have to have. Going back to the basics, it's implying, well, it's really always been this way. We just missed it. We got off track. Uh, That was written and released actually in 2014. Rohr speaks in that work to 10 statements as a type of confessional statement that outline keys in what we would call progressive Christianity. He does not call himself that. 
actually in one of the videos, again, I can't remember if it's in one of the ones you're going to watch, he actually says, you know, if people want to call me liberal, that's fine. But really, I'm not liberal. I'm actually very orthodox, okay? Which orthodoxy, what, is, what does it mean to be orthodox? I'm throwing a lot of terms out there. I just don't want to use a term and you guys not really be aware, maybe familiar with how that word would be defined. So orthodox. What do I mean by orthodox? Okay, structure, traditional is a good one. Yep. What's that? Original. Yeah. So an orthodox belief would be a belief that's held by the church. Usually they go back to its founding. They'll say this is a orthodox belief, meaning the church as a whole, since the beginning of the church, has held to this view. Okay, orthodoxy. We believe this to be what the church has always stood for. And then they'll say, because we believe the Bible teaches that. Okay? So when somebody says, I'm orthodox, they mean this is actually very traditional teaching. The church has accepted this. Liberal would be the opposite of that. It'd be a new, progressive, kind of individualized understanding of church tradition or scripture. Okay? So he writes this, this resource, this devotional series. However, Rohr's work is just really a retelling of an earlier work by an individual named Philip Gully called If the Church Were Christian, Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. That was released in 2011. If the Church Were Christian, Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. Again, you can just hear the desire of the author to get us to think this is really what it should have been like all along. Now, if the church were Christian, you're going to find out through all the things we're going to go through in the coming weeks, you would not talk about sin. You would not do this. You would emphasize love, relationship, morality, right? Serving, being there for people. It's going to be very much a felt needs type religion. Now, the book I'll be referencing through our little study here, the little book that I read, is actually a critique of those two works. This guy, his name is Mark, Michael um, uh, Kruger, is how I'm going to say that. So Michael Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R, he wrote the little book that I read and referenced. That's a critique of those two other works by Rohr and by Gully. Okay, so I'm going to reference those guys. And so that's why we're going to watch two video clips in just a few minutes of Richard Rohr's teaching. Okay, so here's what we're doing. We're going to look at Richard Rohr's teaching as an example of progressive Christianity. Then what we're going to unpack in the coming weeks is a critique of that type of teaching. And I was going to just read some quotes, but I thought it would be more effective if I just let you hear from this man's own words what he believes. Now, we will give you snippets. One, because, and I'll warn you, in the one video, because this man, again, is different in his teaching and very kind of free and whatever. Um, in one video, he does use uh, a word of profanity. Now, we're not going to watch that part, okay? But I'm just giving you a warning that if you go study and you want to watch this guy's videos and teachings... I can't guarantee you he's not going to slip those in, okay? I was watching a lot of videos. I only heard one, and so we're going to watch part of that same video. Just stop it short of that, all right? Um, and so we'll talk about that. But that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to watch these videos, give an insight into what he believes and what he thinks, and then we're going to kind of critique that teaching. I should also say this is not a knock against Richard Rohr as an individual. We have to learn this, by the way, as Christians. And I've referenced this before. We can critique a person's teaching and still pray for the person. Still, if God gives us the opportunity, love the person as far as treat them as an image bearer of Christ. We've lost that in a lot of places. There are a lot of people that preach messages on TV that I do not agree with their teaching. 
And I can critique that teaching. I'll give you an example. I do not like Joel Olstein. I don't think he teaches the full Bible. I think there are a lot of half-truths, feel-good, motivational speaker-type teaching. Does that mean I think he's not a Christian? I don't know his heart. He professes to be a believer. I'm going to leave that in God's hands. But I can, as a follower of Christ, discern the teaching. We can hear a teaching and discern that according to God's word. By the way, we're actually called as Christians to do that. So I'm not attacking the individual. This is merely an example of this type of teaching. So we're going to watch two clips. The first clip is actually titled The Universal Christ. This is a book that he wrote, I believe. Uh, This was released in September of 2018. We're going to watch about five minutes of that. The second video is actually uh, part of a three-part series of videos. um, And that's titled The History of Christ. The history of Christ. So the first one is the universal Christ. This is also at his Center for Contemplation, um, which I believe is at, like in maybe Sedona out, out west. Um, and then also the other one is kind of more like in his office talking about the book he wrote. He's being interviewed about that, and he's sharing his thoughts on that. All right? So any questions about what we're going to do for the next couple of minutes watching these videos? Obviously, I don't need to say it. We don't agree with this teaching. Okay? But I wanted to show you this. So, again, and if there's children in here and you want them to watch it or not watch it, that's up to you. But just make sure the kids know we do not believe this. Okay? This is just an example of what we would critique. All right. Well, Greg, go ahead. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. This world. So... As I think I mentioned yesterday, we can't presume that God just got interested in God's creation 2,000 years ago and left the first 13.7 billion years empty of revelation, empty of presence, empty of love, empty of communion. That the poor Stone Age people and the Mayans and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Bushmen of Africa were, were, did not have access to God. Of course they did. God isn't playing hide and seek. But we found in our overemphasizing Jesus without understanding Christ, we created a storyline. I'm making a caricature, forgive me. But that all depends upon a supposed sin that was committed between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And... and, (laughs) That just isn't a big enough storyline for, you know, they're now saying, when I was in college, there were six stars for each one of us. Now it's six galaxies. Did you hear that? I don't know if it's true, but i just reading books like you're reading books. Six galaxies <laughs> for each human being. You have to say, who is God? Oh, and well, he certainly isn't upset because someone bit into an apple. You understand? But uh, I understand how you have to teach the mythic stories, but most people don't know how to understand sacred texts. They really don't. It's not their fault. Uh, they just weren't made ready for it. So um, the Christ existed from all eternity. Now let me give you my definition of Christ. One of you rightly asked me yesterday, where did the word come from? Well, Christ is the Greek 
for the Hebrew word for anointed, mesach means to pour oil on something, which is to recognize its, its inner soul, its inner spirituality. So an anointed anything was a sacred. But to recognize that sacredness, the ritual in a number of native religions was to pour holy oil, to anoint them. The word mesach in Hebrew became Messiah, uh, became the Christ, which means simply anointed in, in Greek. But we lumped it all together and, and laid it on the person of Jesus before we understood the concept itself, what it's saying. So let me give you, I hope, not, my not too simplistic definition of Christ, the Christ mystery. As Paul rightly, Paul still gets this, whether you know it or not, he really does. Paul is a mystic of the first magnitude, which is why we often didn't understand him. Uh, but the Christ mystery is whenever matter and spirit are operating as one. There it is. That's it. That's it. Now that starts at what, and you're the first generation that ever had a word for this at the moment of the Big Bang. Right? Didn't start 2,000 years ago. God started manifesting the God self. The infinite eternal life of the Trinity outflowed and manifested itself in everything visible your eyes have ever seen. What else could it be but the body of God? I mean, just use your Christian common sense. What else could it be? Where did this all come from? But you find that much more clearly represented in earlier mystical teachings. Or my own father, St. Francis, who's the first recorded person to speak of brother, sun, sister, moon, sister, fire, brother, water. It's all sacred. It's one sacred ecosystem. And it isn't divided into the sacred and the secular. Once you get into dividing, as if it's up to you to decide where the Christ is and where the Christ isn't, we lose every time. That's why we have racism. That's why we have homophobia. That's why we have sexism and classism and all the other silliness is the ego has taken upon itself to decide what is sacred. No, it's all sacred. And, and the, the true mystic wants to kneel and kiss the ground every day. He lives, she lives in a sacred universe. So the title I'm pushing for, the publishers are still, and Ben are still arguing about this week by week. This is a better title, this is a better title. But my preferred one is, another name for everything. Every and thing being separated. And the subtitle being the universal Christ. Right into the, sorry Greg. We are going to move right into the second video. Um, and I, I'm sure a lot of thoughts are going through your mind right now. Um, lots of information. But uh, we'll watch the second video. And then I'll give you a little bit of a critique on the second video. Specifically something that he directly does not get right according to church history, um, and then we'll unpack it just a little bit more, all right? So hold, I know you got some comments. I'm sure your brains are swirling, but just hold on to that. We'll watch this next clip. By the, by the 14th century, Western civilization had become 
so, well, I should say the Roman Catholic Church had so united itself with the Roman Empire and thereby become imperialistic, exclusionary, violent, despite the nonviolent teaching of Jesus, that we read everything pretty dualistically, for me or against me, a part of our religion or not. Everything was either or thinking. That's why we desperately did need the Reformation. But the only trouble is the Reformation was even more dualistic. They didn't solve the central problem. It was argumentative. It was either or thinking. Now they were burdened with proving that the Lutheran reform or any other reform was 100% right and those stupid Catholics were 100% wrong. You can't kill your mother. You, you can't kill the past. In our living school, we've learned so much from Ken Wilber and his wonderful phrase, include and transcend. The more you can include, the more you transcend. But we weren't able to think that way. We thought exclude and enlighten. <laughs> so we were always excluding the previous centuries, the other groups, the other religions. We became largely an exclusionary religion. Then that becomes so uh, much the way of looking at reality that right after the much-needed Protestant Reformation, don't get me wrong, but it was just too limited and too dualistic, we have the strangely called phenomenon called the Enlightenment. Now that's largely identified with the 17th and 18th century, where especially in German-speaking countries, English-speaking countries, and French-speaking countries, people become very rational. And thank God for it. It created the medical revolution, the scientific revolution, engineering, science, all the other things we benefit from today. But it became so enamored with the rational mind that it eliminated what now so many books are coming out on this, what was considered the superior mind, even Einstein says this, the intuitive, the symbolic mind, the, uh, well, we would call it the spiritual mind, uh, which basically, I mean, you find it this way. It saw things in holes, not... So I grabbed the wrong video. That's part three. I wanted part two. So... We're just going to go ahead and be, we'll stop right there. That still does the point. That still drives the point directly to what we were saying. Um, and, and so, again, like I said, I watched a lot of videos by this individual, and this is part of a three-part series. And I thought it was part two, what, three that I wanted. When I pulled it up back here, um, it was part two. Um, I don't know that we can just play that right from YouTube, if the Internet would let you, Greg. If you want to look into that and see if you can find the same, it should be part two in the same little series of videos. So let me know. Give me a thumbs up if you find that. Um, so one of the things we want to talk about here is do you notice the amount of time he spends mixing together true things from Scripture? What does Romans 1 tell us? Has God made himself known through creation? What does the Bible say? That we, the invisible becomes visible. 
But do you notice how also, as soon as he said that, he also tied it into native religions. So what is he trying to get us to think about? Well, everyone's always gotten this. We Christians, we confused this 2,000 years ago. Also, what about the sin in Genesis 3? How does he feel about that, according to that first video? It's a myth. Did you hear him say supposed sin? How does God feel about eating an apple? He's surely not upset about that. And what was the response he got when he said that? Everyone laughed. Because it's just foolishness. It's just silliness. In, that, in, in these videos, you're going to find a lot of that. You got that? Will it actually put it up on the screen, you think? Okay, let's give it a shot, see what it'll do. Okay, that's a great paw shot. All right, so this is part two. I, again, I really hope this is the right one. Give it a shot, Greg. You're- Call me liberal. I, I guess that's okay. Oh, it's only from their the perspective. One. If they really knew the perennial tradition, and let me chart that. Pre-Christian religion, which is already founded in the Bible itself. Uh, Judaism, the intertestamental period, the New Testament, the early fathers uh, and mothers of the church, the first five centuries, which we call the patristic period, I can tell you the saints and mystics throughout the 2,000 years. That's the perennial tradition. What you got to do is connect the dots. Now, that's the way I was educated, you know, by the Franciscans in historical theology. Now, once you know that, I promise you this is true, right hand. Uh, I'm not liberal. I'm extremely traditional. I really, but most conservatives are not traditional at all. They, they just call 1940 Alabama tradition. I'm not trying to put down Alabama. Pick any other state. But uh, this won't work anymore. That the way you were raised in the 1950s in California is the whole tradition. Huh? It, um, you know, the word Catholic was already taken by St. Ignatius of Antioch in the year 108, as he traveled across Asia Minor to be killed in Rome, he went to village after village. 108, Jesus has only been dead 70 years. And he finds every little village is already calling itself followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, because they found their dignity they weren't trying to go to heaven. They found their dignity in this world. And he said, this is going to be a Catholic religion. The word in Greek meaning universal. And that's why that's still in the creed. I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But we haven't had the, the one holy undivided church since 1054. In 1054, the West excommunicated the East the Bishop of Rome excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople. He returned the compliment. And we stopped studying one another. So when you good Protestant brothers and sisters came along and reformed us, and we needed it, believe me. I'd be the first to admit that. But one of the reasons we were so corrupt is we had lost the contemplative universal theology of the Eastern Church. So, unfortunately, 
I don't mean this in a demeaning or dismissive way, but... Okay. So, I wanted you to hear that, again, that, that beginning part there. He quoted history, okay? Now, he quoted some things that were accurate, right? That really did happen in 1024. The East and the West Catholic Church really did excommunicate each other. They call it the Great Schism. When that happened, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church separated. And they became very distinct from one from another. And they began to not agree with one another, study one another. That's very true. Also, St. Ignatius did really use that phrase and that term in 108. He really was traveling along and did make that statement that this will become a Catholic religion. Catholic really does mean universal. Okay, That's why the Catholic Church was called the Catholic Church. So, is it true that all believers who come to Christ are part of the same universal body of Christ? Yes. We meet in local gatherings, but brothers and sisters here and brothers and sisters over in Australia, England, wherever else, we're all part of the same body of Christ. Okay? So there's truth there. But he did not say that statement because they found their dignity this side of heaven. Did you notice what he said there? They weren't trying to go to heaven. They found their dignity. So what are we emphasizing? Man's thinking and man's reasoning. By Catholic church, Ignatius designated the universal church. So this is actual history. If you study the works of Ignatius, who was really a early church father, he considered that certain heretics of, this, of his time who disavowed that Jesus was a material being who actually suffered and died, saying instead that he only seemed to suffer. This was in a letter that Ignatius wrote to the churches. He says they were not really Christians. So Ignatius did not mean that they, quote, found their dignity. He intended the statement to mean all who believe in Jesus as a real person who really died for our sins are saved and therefore a part of the body of Christ. That's what Ignatius actually wrote in his early letters to the church. He definitively said there are those in Christ and those out of Christ. There are heretics and there are true believers. But do you see how you just quote someone, throw a time out there, quote this individual who really was in history, quote what they said and take it out of context. Now you can understand, wait a minute, Ignatius would actually disagree with this guy. He would actually combat what he says. Why? Because he understood who really Christ was. We see in these examples what it looks like to mix the Bible with humanism or human understanding. In the second video, Rohr goes on to state that as a warning, again, I stopped before that certain word was used. When we start with a negative anthropology, we will not end up where God wants us to be in our thinking. He explains that we should start with Genesis 1 and not Genesis 3. He states that God made everything good and we do not need to fixate on a problem that needs to be solved or that Jesus came to solve that problem. Now, is it true at the end of Genesis 1, how does God describe every day of creation? It is good. It is good. Every day. What does he say on the last day? It is very good. Did God create everything perfect? Did he make Adam and Eve perfect? But we can't start there without going where? Genesis 3. Notice how in the second video, which I cut off for that reason, he actually refers to creation being good, and he says that's where we need to start in a positive anthropology or study of mankind. But Genesis 3, we don't need to fixate on that, his words. 
of supposed sin. Do you, do you see what's happening here? I'm going to quote Genesis 1 because it backs up my view, but I'm going to ignore Genesis 3 because I don't like that. We don't need to solve a problem. We're fixated on a problem. Now, after laying the baseline, and I know we're almost out of time. I apologize for that little confusion that took up some time. But I want to look at a passage of scripture that will underline our study through this topic. So we're going to look at two passages. Okay? So Jude, the book of Jude in the New Testament, verse 3. So Jude 3. Well, we'll just share a few things and then we'll pretty much wrap up. So Jude, between 3 John and Revelation. So if you get the Revelation, it's the little book right before that. So Jude 3. Writing to the church, this is what Jude says. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So there's a phrase here we have to emphasize. He says, I exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. What faith? What's the faith that Jude is speaking of here? It tells us in the text. What's the faith that we're supposed to contend for? Okay, specifically, how does he define that faith in verse 3? No, look what it says. Which was once delivered unto the saints. So we know it's salvation. We know it's a common salvation. But we have to understand it's the faith that was delivered once to the saints. He's saying... This is the same gospel. It's the same faith that was delivered to Peter, James, John. And they began to preach that gospel and preach that faith. And that's the faith that you came to know and called salvation. You understood this was the apostles' doctrine, as Acts talks about. See, this is the faith of the gospel. Not another gospel, but the gospel. And that's what we contend for. What does it mean to earnestly contend for the faith? It means we defend this faith. We fight for this faith because we want people to know there's only one gospel. Now, Galatians chapter 1. Go back a few books in the New Testament. Again, very familiar passages. But when you hear these things, I pray that you're putting together the dots here and understanding that this is what we need to do as followers of Christ is understand and discern the gospel from attempted or false gospels. Galatians 1, look at verse 6. Now, we unpacked this a lot in our, when we went through Galatians here as a church not that long ago, but I want to draw our attention back to these verses. Verse 6 of chapter 1. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Paul admits that the gospel does not originate with him. And by the way, he wasn't a mystic. Did you catch that in the first video? Paul was a mystic of the highest order. No, he wasn't. 
He was a Jewish believer that had an encounter with Christ, surrendered his life to Christ, came to understand he needed Jesus Christ, and lived the rest of his life for Christ. He wasn't a mystic. There was no native religion here. But again, do you see how he did that? Well, Paul was a mystic, and that's why we don't really understand what he wrote. So now, you can't definitively tell me what Paul wrote because, well, maybe that's not what he meant because, after all, it's so far above our understanding. Now, Peter does say in his own epistle, he says, man, the writings of Paul are hard to understand. And humanly speaking, they are hard to understand. Spiritually speaking, there are some things that are very difficult to understand. That's not, there's nothing mystical about that or new age. It's because we need to study and understand the word of God. And as the spirit gives us wisdom, we will grow in knowledge. So Paul admits that the gospel does not originate with him and also declares that if anyone, including himself, notice that he says, if I or anyone else. So 20 years down the line, if Paul comes back to Galatia and starts preaching a different gospel, the people of the church have every right to say, that's, no, that's not true. Even though it's the same person, we have to reject that because the gospel is the gospel apart from who's teaching it. He says, if anyone, including himself, preaches a different gospel, which is not the gospel, they should be accursed. I'm always amazed when modern teachers want to defend a belief that goes against the consensus of Scripture. Often they will not quote Scripture, but someone in history's view. Notice how few Scripture references there were. But he quoted Einstein. He quoted this person. He quoted that person. He quoted himself. I'm always a little leery when somebody says, oh, no, believe me, I'm not a liberal. I'm very traditional. Well, I'm so glad you told me because your beliefs don't tell me that. Your beliefs should tell me what you really believe, not what you state you believe. Man's opinion, we need to understand this, man's opinion is not a hermeneutic of Scripture. What do I mean by that? Man's opinion is not a hermeneutic of Scripture. That means I don't use man's opinion to interpret Scripture or understand Scripture. I let Scripture interpret Scripture. We do use things like culture, context, history, to understand Scripture in its right context, of course. We even can look to confessional statements of the church, creeds of the church. Those are fine as long as they are affirmed by Scripture. But if a confessional statement, if a creed of the church, if a church's beliefs deviate from Scripture, we don't throw out Scripture and go with the confession or the creed. We stand with Scripture. So I want to give you a quick overview. I'm not going to even break this apart. I'm just going to read the Ten Commandments of progressive Christianity. So I'm just going to start at one and go to 10, and then we'll break these apart over the next coming weeks. So number one, Jesus, and you don't need to write these down. Obviously, we're going to go through them each week, but Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship. We're already out of the word of God. Jesus is a model of living more than an object of worship. Now, do you see the half-truth? Is Jesus a model for living that we should model our lives after the life of Christ? Yeah. By the way, you can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. You can't even do that perfectly in the flesh with the Holy Spirit. But, and they would even say, well, it's not, we still worship Jesus, but it's more than. It's not we deny, but we're going to find out next week, they actually do deny the divinity of Christ and how they understand that. Number two. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. So what do we emphasize? Where you're going, not the sin you've committed. Number three, the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. 
Number four, gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Number five, inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. So we need to invite questions, not try to answer all the questions, regardless of whether Scripture answers them or not. Encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. Number seven, meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. This just reads like our day and age today. By the way, what's one of the institutions that they would like to get rid of? This. Organized, I'm not for organized religion. It's too impersonal. Because you don't understand what the church really is. And again, are there institutions and churches that need to be reformed as far as what he talked about, where they need to get back to the scriptures, get back to the basics? Yeah, 100%. But we don't throw the church away. We strive to help the church to see what the word of God says. Number eight, and this one again, right in that same vein, peacemaking is more important than power. So this is the idea of that authority over someone isn't as important as just getting along. So again, there shouldn't be pastors and leaders of churches. We should all just be coming together and sitting in a big circle and talking about what we all think. Number nine, we should care less. We should care. I'm sorry. We should care about love and less about intimacy. So I changed that a little bit for young years, but we should care more about love and less about intimacy. Life in this world, number 10, life in this world is more important than the afterlife. So over the next few weeks, we will dive into these points and share the partial truth in some of them and what the Bible has to say about all of them. Why? Why am I doing this? So that we are guarded against the cultural push towards progressive Christianity that removes the Christ of the Bible. Jude 3 says, I was going to write to you about this. That's what he says. I was going to write to you about this. Now, he still kind of does. He still talks about the common salvation. But he says, the Spirit basically led me to deal with this issue instead of what I was going to write to you about. Because the, the, the move away from true Christianity was so prevalent in the early church that Jude says, man, I got I to gotta warn you guys. Because he says this, there are those who, come in, who are coming into the church, right? They're coming in unawares, which I always giggle every time I hear that because my mind hears something else. Right? They're coming in unawares. She just got it. Okay. Amen. Welcome, Jill. Thanks for being here tonight. They're creeping into the church. And what are they doing? They're subverting the word of God. And, and apparently, they're people of positions. They're in leadership. And they're teaching to use the grace of God as a license to sin. That's the exact example in Jude. But, but we see the same thing happen in churches today. Creeping in and leadership and diverting and subverting the word of God. Or as Paul says, perverting the gospel. So we're going to study this the next few weeks. I pray that it will be a blessing to you. I pray that it will be an encouragement to you to help us to learn and understand how to discern these things. And again, um, I, I, I hope that hearing a little bit of that teaching um, drives you to realize, man, this is, this is dangerous stuff. Because here's the key. One of the scariest things in those two videos Scary in a sense that I feel so bad for them. Did you see that room full of people? What were they all doing? Writing it down. Oh, this guy. Oh, man. And they're going to leave that place laughing at a supposed sin. 
that took place in the Garden of Eden. And they're going to laugh their way all the way into damnation. And that's terrifying. And someone is claiming God's okay with that. That you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Man, that is terrifying. Because we need to be preaching the need of salvation. We're not fine. We're far from fine, especially naturally. We need Christ. And so I pray that this will be an encouragement to you. Does this mean we go hoop and holler and fight everyone online? No. But in the day-to-day conversations, if you hear bits and pieces of this, you're going to know. Or you're reading a book. Man, please don't just read a book because it's the book everyone else is reading. That drives me crazy. Oh, you got to read this Christian book, blah, blah, blah. Then you get two pages in, you go, there's nothing Christian about this. But a Christian author did it, and it's a really popular book, and it's a bestseller. Great. A lot of heresy is bestsellers. I hear that all the time. I see people sharing things, not in our church necessarily, just in general, sharing books or things about how this and how that. Then you get into the book, and you're like, this is all humanism and self and nothing about depending on Christ, nothing about this. It's about how to make yourself feel good. Listen, you, you fall in love with Jesus Christ, and you'll feel fine. Because he'll sustain that. He'll provide that peace, that joy, that love. But man, we are so enamored with this. From the new age to progressive Christianity and all these different things, we have to be guarded. And I know I get a little worked up on this stuff because I feel strongly about making sure that we as followers of Christ are not being led astray. Because your life makes a difference in someone's life. And if you read something and you repeat something, you could be leading someone down a wrong road. That doesn't mean we only read those we 100% agree with, but you need to be careful. You need to be careful. Are they at least biblically right? We might disagree on minor things, right? Those denominational differences we talked about, fine. But when it comes to the core values of Christianity, we need to be in agreement, especially if we're going to let it influence our thinking in our daily lives, all right? Well, let's do this. We'll pray. And then uh, let you guys be dismissed. I know we're over by a little bit, so I apologize about that. But let's go ahead and... Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, be praying for Julie's cousin, Ruth. Uh, just along those lines, I guess I'll just take a minute then and ask if anyone else has a prayer concern they'd like to share before. We, no, no, I appreciate you doing that. Yep, no, absolutely. Any other prayer concerns before we pray and are dismissed? Jill, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The after stuff, yeah. Well, we've been praying for you guys for uh, since we heard about it, so we greatly want to keep praying for you and your family, Phil, and just you guys. And But, yeah, let's pray for that. You hate to hear that. Um, and people will say, well, that's normal. That happens. You hate to hear that that's what happens in families when somebody passes away. Um, you'd hope it would bring people together, but sometimes it actually can get people worked up. So let's be praying for that, for peace and wisdom 
for calmness and all of that, that words will be said that should be said and not the other way around. Let's be praying for Phil's family and the passing of his grandmother. Anyone else, a prayer request before we pray? No? All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom in these things and as we go our separate ways. Father, uh, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, I just lift up uh, not only uh, this individual, uh, Mr. Rohr, Lord, and uh, so many like him that are caught up in this thinking of uh, mixing together all these things, Lord. Uh, Father, I don't know um, his standing before you, Lord. I can't presume to know his heart. But Lord, you call us to look into the fruit of people's lives and The fruit of his teaching is not one who is a follower of Christ. The fruit of his teaching is one that desires to lead people astray. And so, Lord, based on his teaching, uh, I I would say he's a false teacher. And so, Lord, I pray for him. I pray you'd give him wisdom. And Spirit of God, I pray that you'd work and draw him to repentance, that he would come to understand the error of his ways and repent from those things and turn and trust in Christ. And, Father, there's so many in our world today, so many in our nation, in our own community, Lord, so many in schools represented here or families represented here that have this same thinking, kind of this very humanistic type, individual type Christianity where it's, I pick and choose what I like and what I, I leave what I don't like. And uh, Lord, we let the culture drive the thinking and we don't stop and pause and put the word of God in front of our eyes that we would see the world around us through the lens of scripture. So Father, I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding. Lord, we are not definitively saying that we are right in every single thing that we hold in Scripture. I know there's difference of opinion on some of these areas of belief in Scripture. Lord, when it comes to things like end times or different things, I know we have differences of thought on that, Lord, and that's fine. But Lord, when it comes to those core, key things in the, in the Word of God, Lord, it is clear we cannot deny that you, Lord Jesus, as a part of the Trinity, came and were born of a virgin, died on a cross for our sins, was buried and rose again, and that anyone who believes and trusts in you will find eternal life. Lord, we can't debate that. We can't have a difference of opinion on that. That is the word of God. That is the gospel. So I pray you'd help us to have unity, one with another, in in those core doctrines. And Lord, give us wisdom as we have conversations with others about these things. Lord, help us understand what your word really says. Lord, ultimately, here's what we have to do. We have to understand do we really believe your word? We say we do, but do we really believe it? Do we really want to live under the authority of your word? It's easy to say, Lord, but it's a lot harder to do, and I pray that you'd give us wisdom in that. We can't redefine and rewrite your Bible. It's not under our authority. And so Lord, help us to understand this, that we would be changed and conformed to the image of Christ. Father, we think of Just the Garten family, Lord, we pray your grace and your peace would be present there, that you would give wisdom and guidance and a calmness, Lord, that that cooler heads will prevail, and Lord, that you would just be glorified in that whole thing. We thank you that she was a follower of Christ. Lord, what a hope, what a peace we have to know that she is with you, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And she is seeing, since she left this world, the fullness of her salvation. And so, Father, we thank you that we all that know Christ know that when we leave this world, it is not the end. It is only the beginning. And so, Father, again, be glorified in all of that. Lord, go with us as we go our separate ways. Give us a great week as we look forward for opportunities to serve you. And as we said this morning, to love others and to serve others 
they might come to know Christ. Father, we thank you for all this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.